In every job that must be done, there is an element of fun. Fun, 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 fun. Light speed to the wondrous and wonderful. Cover is not the book, so open it up and take a look. Ah, if it isn't the only bookworm in town. What's that word again? Inspired. I have to sing. I have to play. The music, it's, it's not just in me. It is me. We're happier when you don't sing. Welcome to Notably Disney your ultimate podcast covering Disney music and books. I'm Brett Nackman, your host. Here we dig a little deeper and explore the great wide somewhere about everything under the Walt Disney Company umbrella as it pertains to tunes and writing, from the theme parks and television screens to the Broadway stage and the silver screen, if it relates to anything Disney songs, soundtracks, books, articles, or other things that you can listen to, or read about involving Disney, we'll examine it here. On this episode of Notably Disney, I will be interviewing the author of the new book, Top Disney, 100 Top 10 Lists of the Best of Disney, From the Man to the Mouse and Beyond. That is Christopher Lucas. We'll get to that interview in just a bit. But first, I have a book review about this new release. And just a quick word before I begin that, Indeed, I received an advanced copy of the book, but by no means that did this influence my interpretation or critiques of said book. So I was really excited to find out about this when the news first came out, I think sometime last year, and I saw on Amazon that there would be this new title, All About Lists, and the list person that I am, I knew that this was going to be a special release. Yes, there are some different titles out on the market that are more encyclopedic about Disney. A perfect illustration of that would be the classic Disney A to Z book by Dave Smith, or more recently, the Disneyland Encyclopedia book. But I could tell this was going to be something special, kind of covering a different area in that it was going to really explore the whole wide gamut of the Walt Disney Company, its many facets, and in list format according to those different divisions and specialties within Disney. So a little bit about Christopher Lucas, who's the author of the book. Um, He's an actor as well, and in terms of his writing, he's perhaps best known for co-authoring a book about his father, Uh, called Sing Home the Ed Lucas Story, a blind broadcaster's story of overcoming life's greatest obstacles. And in entering this book, I knew that it was going to be very comprehensive in um, examining all parts of Disney, but he's very mindful from the beginning of the book in terms of making it accessible to both the casual fan and also the devout Disney fan. And he writes at the beginning, quote, 
My lists and entries will be familiar to both longtime Disney fans and newcomers, yet will also include enough original material to enlighten even the most dedicated devotee. My aim is to tell the story of Walt and the Disney Company in an easy-to-follow way through lists of their greatest milestones and achievements." End quote. So this really sets up uh, what I find, and I agree with Chris's statement, that this is a very accessible read for the novice or for the diehard ones like, like me, um, and I'm guessing many of you as well. It's hard to cater to both of those, but I feel in many ways, as I'll demonstrate, that Chris's book is quite effective in capturing both of these audiences. Now, this book has been in development, as you'll hear from the interview with Chris, for about two decades. And what's awesome about this book is that it's divided into many categories. As I said, everything under the Disney sun is more or less covered in roughly 200 pages, which is pretty incredible. Uh, And there are many sections. First, you talk about, or he talks about, I should say, Walt Disney and the Disney Company. And then there's lists related to the films, the characters, Disney cast members, television and other media, and then concluding with the theme parks and attractions. And as I said, based on the title, there are 100 lists in here. So there's a lot of fun details, discoveries, and things that you may not have necessarily remembered about Disney's nearly century-long legacy. So the organization from the get-go is very clear. It makes good sense. By all intensive purposes, this is a reference book. So while one could read it from uh, cover to cover, as did, as I did, uh, you could just pop right in based on whatever category really aligns with your interests. Now, at the beginning, Chris establishes some rules for the lists. Um, there are no internal rankings. Um, some th- lists are divided based on eras. So there's, for instance, in talking about the attractions, he covers some under the classic era, and then also a modern era, which is more or less the past couple few decades. He omitted co-productions and things that were before Disney acquired them. So for instance, you think of something like Darth Vader or Kermit the Frog. These were characters that existed prior to Disney's acquisition. So you have to kind of have that context in mind for how certain things are assembled. Dave Smith, who is that legendary um, founder of the Walt Disney Archives who recently passed away, he served as the reference authority um, for the book, and that lends a lot of credence, as you'll hear from the interview with Chris, what a wonderful person to have as a, as a resource and guide in learning about all aspects of Disney. Another thing that I appreciate from his list of rules, uh, per se, is that he avoided duplication of certain items. So, for instance, with Lady and the Tramp, um, while they're obviously a famous uh, couple, um, kind of like a Mickey and Minnie, um, they're instead placed under the Disney dogs list. So there you have it. So before I go into some of the interpretations of what I loved about the book, and there were many, many things, uh, a few shortcomings come to mind. 
one of them was that I identified that there was a lack of attention to music. There are several lists that relate to songs. I would have liked to see a little bit more on that front, considering that Disney music is indeed a huge facet of the company. And per the you know the nature of this podcast, where we look at music from the parks to the films to Broadway and so forth, it really has its hand in so many different moving parts. And the, the music aspect wasn't really addressed in a whole lot of depth. Um, and there were a few divisions of the company that just really didn't get any attention. Um, there was not a whole lot on the video games um, and Disney Interactive, which has certainly evolved over time and no longer exists in its same format as uh, only a handful of years ago. So there are parts of the Disney company that simply are unaddressed, but considering that so much is encapsulated in, like I said, 200 pages, I think Chris really does a commendable job in capturing so much content. Um, and you'll you'll see, you'll, you'll read that he includes things from Touchstone Pictures and, and Hollywood Pictures. These are film labels that Disney doesn't really utilize anymore, and they were part of the adult fair. So those are kind of forgotten as being part of Disney, but in fact have really shaped the company over the past several decades. So it's nice to see things like that. There are references to extinct attractions. So even though there isn't as much on the music front, I think Chris more than makes up for that in a lot of other areas. You might also find that there is a lack of visuals. There are some photographs scattered throughout the book here and there, um, but this is much in the same vein of Disney A to Z by Dave Smith, where imagery is limited. The emphasis here is on the written content. And while it's a very streamlined read, there's it's not like um, there's so much text on one page where you can't even read it. Um, it's, it's a nice, almost like an encyclopedia. And I think that's perhaps the best compliment I can give to the book in that there are those similarities to Disney A to Z where there's a few blurbs about particular entries. So for instance, a few sentences on Tron um, under the sci-fi list and it, and then it's on to the next item. I think that's very perfect and appropriate given the type of book that this embodies. Uh, one other shortcoming is that certain descriptions of items are very limited. So going back to the notion of music, when referencing songs, it was basically the the name of the song, the property, and the and the lyricist and musician. So not as much detail for particular items, but I think that's also a reflection of how much space there is um, within the confines of this book. So a few shortcomings, but needless to say, I'm extremely enthusiastic about this book, and uh, let's get right into it. For one, a general strength is that it's conversational, it's easy to read, not too much jargon or, or hidden Disney references that are going to be totally obscure to the casual reader, although, or casual Disney fan, I should say, but there is that, there are some fun finds, I'll get into that. As I said, a major strength is that it covers the the whole spectrum of the Walt Disney Company, which is very, very impressive. It also explains the rationale, like I said earlier, why certain things are only mentioned once. So the fact is 
The fact of the matter is that you might only see uh, one reference to a favorite property or brand, um, but that really allows for so much other content to obtain the same amount of attention. So that's a huge plus in my book that unlike some of these um, Disney branded books, um, uh, a number of them just highlight the most popular properties that have the, you know, a number of sequels or um, a huge merchandising lineup. Here, I feel like you're going to see as much on a smaller film as you would uh, a Mary Poppins, for instance, which is kind of cool. Being that this is a top Disney book where there's tons of lists and it's his favorites, it's things that are generally re renowned as favorites, as a reader, you're going to be thinking to yourself, I totally disagree with um, some of the picks, or I'm totally aligned. There are a few things that I didn't necessarily see eye to eye with, one being the notion of corporate icons. There are references to, um, of course, you know, Mickey Mouse, Jiminy Cricket, Tinkerbell. Hannah Montana is on this list as well. I would not necessarily say that that character um, or that show has had as major an impact, especially um, more recently, as these enduring characters. But I also uh, respect Chris's choices in trying to reflect how the company has evolved over the decades and which ones have stolen the spotlight in different ways. And there's no arguing that a character like that was huge in the mid to late 2000s. In terms of underrated films, I, I wouldn't have included uh, gag-driven Home on the Range or Chicken Little, which uh, is a film that I think has good intentions but is actually very mean-spirited in many ways. But that's kind of part of the point. You know, there, there are some inclusions on here you might not agree with, but that speaks to the great discussions that can emerge from checking out this book. So while I would have put in perhaps some other properties um, than those poorly reviewed, kind of forgotten films from the mid-2000s, it's still his opinion, and it's also still reflective of that Disney is is vast and there's so much to choose from. So a few disagreements there, but then I was thinking to myself by the same token, I'm loving so many unique and hidden references. The one list that I absolutely adored was the most unusual Disney films, and that features the like of the famous educational film, The Story of Menstruation. And I can't even say that I've heard of a few of them, including uh, Miracle of the White Stallions, which was apparently set in World War II. So you have very, very obscure stuff in the same book as, uh, like I just mentioned, Hannah Montana, Jiminy Cricket, etc. And as you'll be reading this, you're going to also think, I have to revisit some of my favorite Disney films, because there were a number of them on here where, where I was thinking, gosh, I haven't caught this in the longest time, and now I just want to pop it into the DVD player. There were a lot of awesome lists. I mentioned the most unusual Disney films as one, but there are many other great special lists that don't fall under the umbrella of, like, like I mentioned, there's one on, or maybe I didn't mention it yet, there's a great list on um, best like sci-fi and fantasy films. There's on 
famous Disney felines. There's some clever, unique ones, but then there's also some ones that speak to the company more broadly. I really appreciated the one that focuses on different experts on Walt Disney's life. So these are uh, authors and researchers and different individuals who are very much known for being great historians. So he he highlights a number of them, Dave Smith, Jim Hill, Didier Getz, Jim Corcus, Bill Cotter, Leonard Moulton, Don Hahn, John Canemaker, Jeff Curdy, and Tom Cito. Fantastic, because what this accomplishes is it it serves almost as like a uh, a reference guide for the readers of like, hey, you're enjoying this book. You, you want to know who knows a lot about Walt? Check out their books. Check out their websites. So I think it's this is a nice platform to kind of giving back to other folks who have really set a great foundation for how people present day learn about Walt. There's also some great quotes from Walt and and there's some books out there that focus on Walt Disney quotes, so this is just a, a little compilation. One that I liked that is appropriate for the context of this podcast is a music-related quote. So Walt said, quote, Music has always had a prominent part in all of our products from the early cartoon days. I cannot think of the pictorial story without thinking about the complementary music which will fulfill it. Often the musical themes come at first. They show us the value of telling a story through song, end quote. Absolutely love that. There's some very, very fun lists that recognize some smaller Disney characters. There's a Disney Critters list that highlights the likes of Miko from Pocahontas, Heimlich, uh, the Caterpillar, probably one of my favorite Disney characters ever from A Bug's Life, uh, and also Lewis from uh, Princess and the Frog. There's lists on famous Disney duos, trios, and entire groups. A great list focuses on actors and actresses uh, who found a home at Disney. These, these are individuals who are, whether they've been recognized as Disney legends or and I say that in the formal sense, or are kind of Disney legends just based on the notion of that they're renowned for having a presence in many different films and shows. This, you know, you have everyone from Fred McMurray to Lindsay Lohan, uh, though her life has changed drastically over the past decades since her Disney days. Um, for, I'd say, a good six, eight-year period, she was producing a ton of Disney films. So that was kind of a fun list that helps us remember that there are some individuals who are so closely tied to Disney that it's really part of their identity as performers. Similarly, there's a list on actors whose careers blossomed at Disney, whether that be Sean Connery, whose first um, really big film role was in... uh, uh, why am I blinking on the name? Darby O'Gill and the Little People, of course. That was from the late 50s. And uh, Jodie Foster, you know, her career was established quite strongly in the in the 70s with Taxi Driver, but, you know, she was in Disney films like uh, uh, Napoleon and Samantha and others. I would have liked a reference to 2005's Flight Plan, but uh, so it goes. 
And then Tim Allen, 1990s, that was such a landmark decade for the company, but talk about a guy whose career was just at the top of his game between Home Improvement and the book that he wrote and Toy Story and Santa Claus. Uh, 1994, as referenced, was a landmark year for him in a number of ways. So that was a fun list. There's also some great lists on live action TV series. So there are some ABC shows that are mentioned there. Again, ABC being part of the Disney family. So you see references to Dinosaur. Remember that? Jim Henson. And Boy Meets World. There are also live action TV characters. They get their own list. So speaking of Boy Meets World, the very, you know, the epitome of the perfect teacher, Mr. Feeney by William Daniels. He gets uh, a mention, which is fantastic. Um, so is Pat from Smart House. You might be thinking, who's Pat? Well, you know what? Go back to your DCOM library. Uh, check out this awesome 1999 film that very much is a time capsule of 1999. And uh, the Katie Seagal character from that film, who was basically uh, running this totally awesome technologically driven home, she she gets a spot, which is pretty cool. There's a list on Disney characters unique to the theme parks and dearly departed rides and attractions. So lots of great lists. I, I had a ball when just reading through these, and Chris's commentary in mentioning some of these items is, uh, just particularly clever and fun and accessible. Um, for instance, when, when referencing the title character of Mama Coco from Pixar's Coco, he wrote, quote, um, this, uh, another case of having your name the title of the movie, but nobody really knowing your character, end quote. I, I thought that was just absolutely hilarious. I, I found myself smiling a lot of times with references to some of these smaller characters, whether it be going back again to Tim Allen, um, his Michael Cromwell character from Jungle to Jungle um, that was recognized as a live-action Disney-leading male character. Um, I was thinking to myself, why is Fred McMurray from Absent-Minded Professor not on here? But uh, in any case, what the whole point being, you know, there, there are inclusions of these uh, forgotten characters that are still very much beloved by individuals from a certain time and era. And what's so important is recognizing, as I said, the people who make up Disney. So the fact that there's attention on the Disney cast members is just really, really special, whether it be the performers or the folks in the parks, you know, that and the Imagineers, like there are so many individuals who have made the Disney, what the Disney company is today, and Chris never forgets that. I also learned a lot about Disney from reading this book, and I'd say I, I have a, a pretty robust knowledge, but for instance, I learned the specific names of characters. So the White Witch from the Chronicles of Narnia, I never knew her name was Jadis, and then the uh, Red Queen from Alice in Wonderland, she has a specific name. It's, um, I'll try to pronounce it, it's like Irsabeth of Krems. So, like, there are some really fun little finds in here. And that's part of 
that's part of the package too. So all in all, this is definitely a must purchase. I would have gone this book anyways because I was so looking forward to uh, getting a copy of it. So I appreciate um, having had the opportunity to read it. I highly encourage you to check it out. And yeah, we're going to talk more about Top Disney with Christopher Lucas, the author. Before we dive into the interview with Chris, a quick word about our sponsor, Don the, Vac the Vacation Year with Second Star Vacations. Well, in reading Top Disney, you might be thinking to yourself, oh, I absolutely have to ride on Peter Pan's flight immediately because it was named as one of the top 10 classic attractions, and I'm totally with you. Might I recommend Dawn of the Vacation Year? She specializes in all Disney travel destinations, including Walt Disney World, Disneyland, Aulani, Disney Cruise Line Vacations and Adventures by Disney, guided tours. Unlike big box travel agencies where you're just another number, Donna is your personal travel consultant. Your needs will always come first. Plus, she is available to you before, during, and after your vacation to help ensure it is everything you dreamed it would be. Best of all, her services are free. For more information, go to secondstarvacations.com or email her at donna at thevacationier.com. Tell her we at Notably Disney sent you. Now, on to the interview with Chris. Well, I'm glad to have on this episode of Notably Disney, Christopher Lucas, who is the author of Top Disney, 100 Top 10 Lists of the Best of Disney, From the Man to the Mouse and Beyond. Uh, what a great title, Chris. Thanks so oh, much thank you. on the podcast. Well, thank you for having me on. It's an honor. Well, I have to first say before we dive into the development of the book that this is exactly the type of title that I would have loved to own as a child because I'm sure like a lot of Disney connoisseurs, we grew up developing our own lists and things that we enjoyed about the company or maybe thought could be better. And I feel like this this book is going to offer folks um, that resource, that handy reference book of sorts. Well, yeah, that, I mean, thank you very much. That was the idea. And I'm glad you mentioned it as a child, too, because I tried to write it accessible to everyone, no matter we, whether you're a beginner with Disney or you're a super fan or you're someone who considers themselves really well versed as an expert. I tried to put a little something there for everyone. So um, I, I appreciate what you had to say about it. Well, let's dive right into it. So I understand, Chris, you're an actor, you're an author. Could you talk a little bit about your background Um and also just your context on how you grew to have a passion for Disney and then subsequently write a book about the company. Well, sure. I, I live right outside of New York City. I live in New Jersey. I can look out my window and see the Empire State Building or anything. So I grew up here and my grandmother took us into the city every weekend to see all the wonderful things that were available in New York City. And one of the places is Radio City Music Hall, which is still there, a great theater. But they used to show movies on a regular basis. They don't anymore. And in 1973, she, I was very young. She took me to see Robin Hood, which was the last movie they showed their Disney movie uh, as far as movies. And it wasn't just the movie. It was the they had a whole stage show it was the Rockettes and Mickey and Minnie and before and after the show. And so uh, that was the first movie I ever saw. It was like the first stage production. And I knew two things after seeing that, that I, I a wanted to be a performer. I wanted to be up there or on the screen or on stage. And B, I wanted my life to somehow have something to do with Disney. So the two have kind of 
melded together. I was lucky when I was a teenager. I got my first professional job in theater, and then I've been working steadily ever since for over 30 years. So Disney's kind of popped in and out here and there. And for the last 20 years, in my head, I had the idea of writing this book. So it's been, you know, as you said, when you're younger, you make all these lists and you you list your own personal top tens. But I kind of got the idea 20 years ago that, boy, this, I'd love to write something that people could see that collects everything from the movies, the TV, to the parks, to the people. And um, that's why it took so long to get it together. So, so what, what an interesting uh, trajectory. And it's, it's, I also appreciate how you talked about seeing Robin Hood for the first time um, in the theaters had an indelible impact. It seems like for a lot of us, it's that first Disney movie we see in the theaters that just strikes a certain um, impact in, in our lives. And, um, may spark passion too. And, you know, I, and somebody, I was talking to somebody the other day and they were saying, as you always hear, like, oh, I can't believe the prices for a Disney vacation or going to Disney World and how expensive it is and they keep raising. But, you know, Walt, and they also said, oh, Walt would be upset. I said, no, because Walt never promised everybody that they'd be able to go to Disneyland or, or he didn't, what Disney World was coming before he died, but he never made the promise. All he said was, if you get there, you're going to have fun with your family. What he did was he made accessible to everyone at every budget. You know, if you can't afford to go to Disney World, then at the very least, you can watch the Disney Channel or you can go to a Disney movie or you can pick up a Disney storybook. And so that's the beauty of this company is that they're everywhere and they're part of our culture. And I don't think there's a you could probably go into the deepest jungle somewhere on the planet where, you know, they don't have much civilization, but they, they probably have mouse ears somewhere in there because uh, it's everywhere and and. You know, I don't think anyone can escape it. And there are some people that don't like it, and that's fine. But for most people, it starts in childhood, and you you develop a fondness for something about Disney. So I, I just carried that through my professional and personal life. But uh, it's, again, the genesis of the book. Absolutely. And you mentioned the notion earlier of how the spark for the book came about 20 years ago. And you, you just talked about how Disney is everywhere. And certainly with the advent of the Internet, it makes everything so much more accessible and where individuals can contribute their own voices. Did did the internet in some capacity or things that you were seeing online have any influence in the creation of the book? Oh, it, it certainly did because 20 years ago is really when, when the internet started to become more popular and then it was when browsers were becoming more available. And I think Google had just started, I'm not sure about the timeline, but it was close to then. And so it made it a little easier, but it also made it a little perilous because as you know, not everything on the Internet is 100 percent accurate. Like uh, one of the most common ones, people say, you know, all Walt loved to say, if you can dream it, you can do it. And he never actually said that. That was in Epcot. They had a ride Horizons and one of the Imagineers came up with that quote and put it on the wall. And everybody just assumed, oh, Walt Disney said that. So that's out there everywhere. If you can dream it, you could do it. Walt Disney, I've seen it in stores and like, you know, inspirational frames. So that's one of those things that if you don't really look into it, you can easily say, oh, okay, there it is. I saw it on Facebook or I saw it on Twitter and it must be true. But uh, one of the first things I did when I really decided, okay, I'm going to be serious about this is to contact Dave Smith, the late Dave Smith of the Disney archives. And I was just asking him a question of whether or not anybody had done something like this, because when you write a book, the first thing you need to do is what am I saying about this subject that's new that nobody else has done? So if somebody else had done a book of lists, I wouldn't have done it. But he immediately called me right back and said, wow, you know, we, nobody's ever done anything like this. And we thought about it. And he said he was too busy to do it. So he gave me his blessing. 
And through the years, he put me in touch with people like Dick Van Dyke and Tim Allen and Art Linkletter and all these people that were very helpful. And I was able to go out to the archives a couple of times. And when I couldn't, I would call him. He said, you know, call me anytime. And uh, I was able to fact check. So everything in the book was verified by the archives. So I had to make sure anything I put in there, you know, I, I wasn't just saying stuff I had read somewhere else. So the Internet is good because it makes things a little easier. But you also have to make sure that what you're putting in there is exactly the right thing and, and is verified by someone. Gotcha. Well, kind of, could you maybe share a little bit about the timeline? So when did you first get in touch with Dave Smith Dave Smith, and, fi- and kind of initiate this process of collecting information for the book? It was around, it's around 2001. So the idea kind of came into my head in 99 or so as we were approaching the year 2000 and I was down in Disney for the millennium celebration and I knew Walt's birthday was coming. So I I was actually, I had gone on a Disney cruise and I was reading a lot. I had a stack of books with me to, you know, in the downtime while you're out there on the deck and I was reading a lot of Disney books and they were about Walt and I was preparing a show. I do a one man show about Walt Disney. So it was research for that. And then I I said, you know what, all these little anecdotes I'm reading here and about all these movies, there's not one book that kind of makes it easy for people to see. Here are the top 10 Westerns that Walt did. Here are the top 10 you know, episodes of his TV program. So it came from that. And I just started scribbling notes here and there. And then in 2001, around Walt's birthday, around December is when I finally got up the nerve or just got up to, you know, the, the chutzpah, I guess, to say, hey, Mr. Smith, I, I just like your opinion on it. So it's, it opened up a door that I didn't think was going to open between myself and Disney. And, and also the other reason it took 20 years is because Disney's a very litigious company. So I had to make sure that, everything I was doing was on deck with them as well. Gotcha. So considering that this is a a long time coming, what has this process been like of one, determining what types of lists you wanted to include and and then two, um, handling the verification and some of those procedural aspects? Well, the first part, the, the list, some of them were easy. I'd say like 50 of the 100 were just no brainers. You know, the top 10 Disney princesses, top 10, you know, villains, those things that people would expect in a book of top tens. But the other ones I had to I'd say to myself, what's what kind of unique? What can I do that somebody wouldn't be expecting? So, uh, you know, it's top 10 Disney canines or felines or or critters or couples or things like that. And and try to then figure out what goes on there. And I will say that in 20 years of doing this, I've written and rewritten it over and over again because Disney just keeps evolving. And even now. The book went to print earlier, just around November last year, and we determined that we were going to end the book in 2017. Well, already in the last year and a half, there's so much that's changed that I'm going to have to start getting ready for a new edition and adding more things because Disney's just moving at a rapid pace. So that's a lot of it is the, the lists were half of them were ones that everybody would expect and the other half were ones that I was trying to say, hey, I want to make something different. So blending the two and making it a history of the company told through lists, which was also my kind of overarching story for the book. Well, and and what was also nice about it is that it's very clearly organized in terms of having a portion really beginning the book on Walt Disney and then going into characters and films and later the theme parks and other media. Did you have that kind of concept that you wanted to be very comprehensive in covering all facets of the Walt Disney Company? I did. That was, I mean, that was my main thing in my head was I I knew that most people, you know, sometimes they just focus on one area. Like a lot of people are, 
are all about the parks. And when you say Disney, that's all they think about are the rides and the parks. And the, and to them, that's Disney. But uh, some people are all about the movies or the movies and the parks, and they forget about the whole television history. And uh, and then Walt himself, I wanted to make sure. So, And then one of the other parts that was really that I wanted to get into, and to me is my favorite part of the book, is about the people. Because everybody knows the stars, like a, like a Julie Andrews and... and uh, people like that, but it's the behind the scenes people that I wanted to sort of highlight. And I wish I could have highlighted even more, but I had to stick to 10 for each list. So that was my favorite part of the book to do because that took a little bit more research and finding out more about these people. And in some cases, interviewing people who knew them. So, um, yeah, that was the, I didn't, when I started it, it was just going to be a book of lists, but as it started progressing, it became, Hey, let's tell the story from beginning to end and make it easy for like I said earlier, someone who doesn't know anything about Disney, they can just either read it straight through or they can jump in here and there and still be able to follow the timeline of the company. So what what tools did you turn to for cataloging this information? You mentioned that you're a big reader, that you interviewed folks. How how did you gather all this data, more or less? Well, I will say that I'm standing on the shoulders of giants that came before me, like Dave Smith and Jim Corcus and Didier Gaz and all these people who have written volumes of, there are people, you know, I wish one of my regrets is uh, I'm a big letter writer. I, I reach out to people through letters and I wish when I was younger, I'd been smart enough to say, let me write to Ward Kimball and to, to Wooly Ritherman and all that, you know, Disney's nine old men, the classic animators and get a letter. And many of them were a lot of today's animators opened up. They, they wrote letters as teenagers to these guys and that's how they became Disney animators. So I, I didn't think about doing that. And so I had to rely on other people who had spoken to them and reading their accounts and things like that. So um, a lot of the work was me doing the work myself, but a lot of it was just the resources were there already. There's so many great books. My library of Disney books is about 400 books now. And even then, that's a portion of what I could have if I had, you know, the some of them are super expensive now because they're out of print. But um, you know, I get a lot of libraries and find books. So a lot of the stuff in the book is that's, it's probably 50, 50, 50% is from reading and from researching and from verifying. And the other 50 is just talking to people or my own observations about rides and movies and things like that. And I was very careful in the book. I didn't want it to be Chris Lucas's top 10 of everything. So I made, you know, there are some personal favorites I have like Robin Hood that I, you know, if, if you ask me my personal top 10, that would be right at the list. But I know that 90% of Disney fans are not putting Robin Hood as their number one movie. So I had to balance my own favorites with what's the consensus out there. So, and a lot of that came from reading all these resources and books and talking to fans and reading surveys and stuff. So it, it was, it was, that's why it took 20 years. It was just kind of condensing all that in my head and on paper and getting it out there. Gotcha. And, and one of the many lists that I enjoyed was that you, you detail what, are the most informative books about Walt Disney, for instance. So I'd imagine because so much has been published on him over the years, some factual and some that's more interpretive, that that probably could have been a rabbit hole of sorts in terms of um, identifying what's going to be most useful. How did you uh, navigate that particular list? I will tell you, though, that was, out of all the lists in the book, that was probably the trickiest one because, A, I've now befriended a lot of those people who've written books about Disney and, you know, you never want to leave a friend out of a book or someone you've, you've grown close to or someone you've talked to, but B, 
I, I had to make sure that I wasn't just on the, for instance, the top 10 books about Walt himself. I didn't just want to list this biography, that biography. I had to find books that were representative. So there, you know, there's one that's, uh, the Bob Thomas one is probably the best one about Walt's whole life. So I used that for that portion of it. But then there are some books about Walt and his love for railroads. And so I tried to pick with the books one representative for all the different parts of Walt's life and the best one out of that group. And it's hard because I had to leave out so many great books. I, I probably could have made that list at least 25 or 30 books, but because I was, I limited myself to 10 each and I did put an honorable mention there, but um, that, that was the toughest one for that reason, because there's just so many good books out there. There are some that was easy to eliminate because they're not as well researched and, uh, the, for instance, the one that a lot of people read, and it's a great book. It's the Neil Gabler book about Disney, and right. it it just came out a couple of years ago, and it is comprehensive, and he did a lot of great work in it. But what I'm not fond of is he took a lot of speculative leaps in it. He he kind of guessed at what Walt's thinking was and Walt's psychology and all. That. And to me, when you write a book like that, you know, I, I'm I want people just to stick to the facts. Or if there's a quote from Walt that he said himself, then great. But I'm not a big fan of when people say, well, I think Walt might have believed because you're then you're kind of guessing in the book. And, and so I put it in there, but I, I was very hesitant. And I even put a disclaimer in my description of it to say there are a lot of right. uh, speculative things. But, yeah, that, that was a really tough one. That and there are a couple of other lists of books and movies that I had to kind of narrow down in that same process. Right. Yeah. And I had no I had noticed that you made that reference. And it makes me think, too, of the PBS documentary from a few years ago, The American Experience on Walt Disney and how that yeah. received criticism and, for some of the same reasons. And, and I said the same thing about that one, too. It's a great it's a wonderful doc. And they've got some clips in there I've never seen before. And there are some great people. Uh, Tom Cito is one of them, who's an animation historian, and he, he knows all about the union strife. And, and he's on there, and, and, and that part of it is terrific. But like you say, there are experts on there who didn't really know Walt, didn't know anything. about. I prefer like the one, The Man Behind the Myth, that was on Netflix recently that they put out in 2001, where right. the Walt Disney Family Museum talked to people who were alive and were friends with Walt and worked with Walt. And that one is far more detailed and and i you know i trust the opinions in that one because those people knew him personally and were with him every day and spoke to him so you have to take some things as i said earlier with a grain of salt and kind of see where the source is coming from but this doesn't mean that they're not great products or great books it just means you have to be a little hesitant with what you're reading in it sure of course and well and i think that makes an informed reader and um really an investigator of sorts i i wonder too chris you mentioned the the idea of that this was a very iterative process with constantly rewriting lists or looking back at different things. How did the influx of new content from the company through 2017 impact how you constructed certain lists? Because certainly, as you talked about, a lot is, a lot is coming out of the company in all different <laughs> yes. branches. Well, I, 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 one of the things I was careful about in the book is to, to make sure that anything from Lucasfilm or the Muppets, or, uh, or or Marvel, or any of that, I, I made a clarification in the book that if it was produced after Disney bought those companies or, or absorbed them, then okay, I'll put that in the book. But as far as like top 10 villains, if I listed all of Lucasfilm, well, then Darth Vader would be right up there in the book. He, he pre-existed before, or Kermit the Frog was, you know, before Disney got a hold of them. So 
there are some things like characters from The Force Awakens, which was made by Disney and the movie The Avengers and stuff like that, that I put in there because that came post Disney. So uh, it's hard because there's constantly uh, like my section of live action musicals. I, I had nine and they were legitimate musicals. And then I was really stretching for a 10th musical and Step Up, which is not the greatest musical. You know, it's Channing Tatum and it's fun, but that made the list. And it's, it's you know, number 10 on the list because there weren't that many live action musicals. But since I've, the book went to print, now you've got, you know, this, this year alone, you've got Aladdin coming out and, and you know, the Lion King. So certainly in the next edition, Step Up is going to get bumped off by a bunch of these other ones. But it's it's there are new movies and, you know, now there's sequels coming out and, the, and all the live action Dumbo. So all these things have to be considered. And I am making little notes, jotting them down so I don't forget that when we do get to writing the next version of it, that uh, I know where to put them on the list. Well, you gave up, Step Up a moment to shine, which is probably very fortunate for that <laughs> film. Yeah. <laughs> I, if I, I get a thank you letter from Channing Tatum, then, uh, then my, I'll be happy. It's... Yeah, you can, you can put that as a review <laughs> for the second edition of the book. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I'm wondering, because it was so refreshing to read a Disney book that really pays homage to some of the lesser known aspects of the company. And I guess... Step Up would be a perfect illustration of that, a film from Touchstone, which is a banner that Disney really doesn't use um, much anymore. How did you find ways to to weave in that content? Because needless to say, not everything under the Walt Disney Company umbrella is that prototypical family fair. So it, how did you navigate um, integrating some of that content, whether it be Touchstone or um, some some more adult properties? Well, I mean, that's a good question because Touchstone and Hollywood Pictures are two very important parts of Disney that they, you know, they, they, they were specifically created by Ron Miller, who I love, and he pops up in the book here and there. People, he's gotten kind of lost in the shuffle and he passed away a couple of months ago, but he's the guy who, uh, he was Walt's son-in-law and they were watching To Kill a Mockingbird one night. Walt had a private screening and Walt was in tears and he said, I wish I could make a movie like that. But Disney is kind of handcuffed because we have to make all these family friends. Not that Kill a Mockingbird isn't family friendly, but it's got themes that are a little darker and a little more serious. And so Ron Miller kept that conversation in his head. And in 1982, he started Touchstone Pictures and that was specifically created so that Disney, it wouldn't say Disney on it, but they would be Disney films. So in the book, I have a whole top 10 of, you know, Touchstone films and then Hollywood Pictures films. It's important that they're in there. But the other way to do it that I put in there was I broke films down by genre. So I have Westerns right. and I have uh, sci-fi movies and adventure movies. And there I was able to include movies like Touchstone and the, uh, 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 not Touchstone, um, trying to think of the the one the Wyatt Earp movie I can't think of it I forgot the the one with Kurt Russell oh Tombstone that's uh, I said Touchstone Tombstone of course sorry a little brainer there but yeah I said Touchstone but Tombstone is a, is a Touchstone film so I got the two confused and uh people don't realize movies like The Sixth Sense which was for a while Disney's biggest live action hit was The Sixth Sense and People look at that and they don't think of that as a Disney movie, but it was a Disney movie. And they made some great R-rated movies, too, like Down and Out and Beverly Hills and all these movies that are a little raunchier. And, and you wouldn't certainly think of them as Disney, but they deserve mention in the book, too, because they're an important part of the company's history and getting to where they are now. They, they have yet Disney to make 
a rated R movie that has the name Disney on it. They haven't crossed that yet. They have yet to make. Uh, they've they've made Pirates of the Caribbean, which is PG thirteen, but I the animated films, you know, they're still PG. They haven't crossed that barrier yet. But someday, you know, never, you never know. They might. Disney might be accepted enough to be able to do that. I doubt it because they want to keep that family friendly brand. But um, that's why they had it to be included in the book because they are part of the story, and 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 that's one of the things I wanted to highlight that people don't realize. There are movies like that that you everyone's familiar with. Pretty Woman is another one, one of the biggest box office successes of all time for Disney, but people don't see it as a Disney movie. Well, and and that's just the the beautiful thing about. It. Disney is that it is so varied and per the notion of some of the lists like the the westerns and sci-fi lists you mentioned like you're seeing uh, you know uh, you're, you're seeing Tombstone along in the same list as the Lone Ranger so um which obviously was a, a huge um, financial flop but nonetheless was quite impactful for you know some of the you know special effects and choreography and some of those other elements too Sure. And and like, you know, I, the sci-fi ones, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea was, you know, Walt's first big sci-fi action adventure. And that was the 50s. And yet it's right there on the list with Armageddon, which was another huge hit for Disney and Touchstone in the in the 90s. So the, all these movies, you know, we think they're modern, but they're linked back to what Walt was trying to do back then. So that's what I was trying to do with the book is bring the story forward and show you if he were still alive. He certainly somebody asked me that the other day. What do you think he'd think of all this? And he was always moving ahead to the next thing. So he'd be embracing streaming services and and digital and computer generation. He would be all over that. In fact, he'd want to move on to the next one and come up with the next big thing. So I think they honor him with all these things that they're doing. And and uh, I did mention it before. Pixar was the only exception where I said I didn't take characters from the Muppets and all that. Disney, even though they didn't buy Pixar until a little bit later on, they were always tied together. So there I made the exception and I, I put in Buzz and Woody and all these characters that technically weren't owned by Disney in the beginning, but uh, they were made certainly for Disney. Absolutely. Could you maybe, going back to the, the sci-fi fan, fantasy list as an example, could you maybe break down like your process in, in developing a particular list? Because certainly there's many dozens of these types of films across the company, whether um, theatrical or even some on television. But like, how, how did you near, like get that, assemble that list in general and then narrow it down to 10? Well, that was where, that was where Dave Smith and the archives, they were very helpful because I would say to Dave, you know, I, I have my idea of what a sci-fi film is, but what does Disney classify in their own record keeping as sci-fi? And he would send me, okay, these are the 45 films that we, have classed as our genre. And some I'd look at and go, well, that's a little weird. That doesn't seem like a sci-fi film, but I wasn't going to argue with him. And same thing with Westerns and all that. And he included Touchstone and Hollywood Pictures. And then from there was process of elimination. And part of it was how well did they do at the box office? Are they movies that people still remember? Are they movies maybe if they didn't make a lot of money that they're something about them struck a nerve or were they groundbreaking or all these different things. So you mentioned the Lone Ranger, you know, it was a big flop, but in a way that's Disney history. That was, that was one of their biggest money losers of all time, but at least they gave it a try and they tried to make this big budget Western picture modern day and it just didn't work. Uh, so th that's what I did. I, I kind of got from them first, the list of here are the movies in these genres. And then it was just, trying to figure out the 10 out of that. Some have 11 because I put honorable mention or special mention when it was really hard to narrow down, but uh, most of them are stuck at 10. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, and I, for one, definitely 
um, enjoyed Lone Ranger. And I also was a fan of John Carter. Um, I, I hope that yeah. um, has a greater prominence in a, a future edition too, because unfortunately it has some of the similar trends in terms of being a huge financial disaster, but um, based on interesting source material too. Yeah. And it, it broke my heart to put it in there for that reason. And that's why it's in the book because it is, uh, if not the biggest, certainly one of their biggest financial dis. It was weird because they had three Mars movies that came out within a few years. It was the uh, right. Mission to Mars with Gary Sinise, and that was a huge flop. And then the one that's in the book that I really highlight is one of their most unusual films is Mars Needs Moms, which was oh yes the Robert Zemeckis <laughs> thing that just never quite because it, it was that uncanny valley of computer animation that didn't quite look real and audiences weren't ready. And then right after that. The reason John Carter of Mars was shortened to John Carter was because Mars Needs Moms was a flop. So they said, oh, we'll take the word of Mars out of it. But those three movies in, in like a three year span lost a lot of money. So I, I doubt they'll ever be going back to Mars again with a movie or if they do, they'll they'll make sure they do market research. But that's why those movies are in there. Again, I think they're good movies, but most people, they know them as Disney's big flops or Disney's unusual movies. Yeah, or at the very least, they'll let Fox take care of that department and they can make a Mars film. <laughs> that's what I'm hoping. And that's why I'm glad they bought Fox, too, because now they right. can they have an outlet to make movies that whether the touchstone is gone. They've gotten rid of the touchstone brand. They've gotten rid of Hollywood pictures. Everything's kind of Buena Vista distribution or uh, Disney pictures or whatever. So now Fox will allow them to go back to making those movies that are a little edgier and taking chances on movies and Disney only releases now their Slater films every year is less than 10, which is unusual for a studio, but it's because they're, they've gone back to being handcuffed by not making anything R rated or something too over the top. So now that now they have some, I think that's one of the main reasons they did that was not only to get the library and the content, but to have a way to say, Hey, look, we could still make movies and keep Fox, which is an incredible studio and all that history. I'm glad they're not killing it off. They're going to keep, they said they were going to keep that banner and release it under 20th or whatever it is, 21st Century Fox now. Right, right. Now that's a way of extending their reach. And they have Disney Plus, which might also allow for greater experimentation um, or at least having smaller type films in the mix again. I'm wondering because I was so impressed by, in, in reviewing the book, how many, not only how many films are referenced at different points but also the rarities um some very rarely mentioned films i i noticed trench coat was among them yes. how how did you like i first have to ask how many disney films do you estimate you've you've seen and then subsequently like how did you come across some of these really unfamiliar entries i well again that was the archives they sent me a list of every movie they considered a disney movie and that includes every branch of their company and uh, even the educational film, they sent me everything. Then this is the list. And then my that was about 15 years ago. So my task after that was to watch every single one of these films. And some of them, oh, wow. some of them were available on YouTube. Some thanks to Netflix, it used to be Netflix DVD and some streaming. But, uh, you know, I was able to, as the Disney movie club had some uh, little treasures that you could only get if you were part of the movie club that, uh, I ordered those. So a lot of these I was able to track down and the ones I couldn't, I had to go to luckily here in New York, we have the Lincoln center library and uh, the museum of broadcasting that has a lot of these uh, that you could see. You can't take it out, but you could sit down there and watch. So I was able to watch all these movies and, and I'm not going to say every one of them was interesting. I will confess that the nature films put me right to sleep. I, you know, I'm a fan of nature. I love it, but 
I, I something about those movies, and and I know Walt loved them, and those were some of his favorites. But I just I fall asleep with a lot of them, so I I had to. I, but I made myself watch every one of these movies over the course of fifteen years, so that I if I was writing a book like this, it would be dishonest if I omitted something or added something without actually seeing the movie and knowing what it was about. And you know, reading a synopsis is one thing, but seeing the actual movie and being able to compare it to everything else was important at least i thought anyway so so it sounds like you've then watched many hundreds of disney films then. <laughs> yes everything and and all the shorts too i had to watch every all the mickey shorts because there's, in the book i list the top 10 mickey shorts and pluto shorts and goofy and donald and strangely Minnie never uh, all the others got their series of shorts she she was in other right. people's shorts but she never got her own which is I, people are amazed when I say that, but she had a few movies, little shorts that she did, but they were not, they were labeled Mickey Mouse shorts, not mini. So I watched all of those and all the silly symphonies and all the black and white ones and just try to get an idea of, you know, how, again, how the company evolved. It made it easier for me as a writer as well, because I was able to tell the story through the people. And you can, if you watch from the beginning till the end you see how all these animators grew and how their art like the, how they were experimenting early on with the shorts using those for testing how to draw humans and how to make things look more realistic and by the time they got to snow white that didn't come out of nowhere you watch 10 years of shorts that they were making where that's what they were doing it was like their little school that they were making sure that they were able to accomplish this wow well what in reviewing or watching so many movies was there one or maybe two that stand out as ones you could you just absolutely could not stand um or just thought were complete duds no you know it's it's funny because each one of them i i won't say i couldn't stand it i i will say again some of them i lost interest about halfway through but they were not duds i appreciated the the effort, a lot of it, I guess, comes from the fact that I'm an actor and a writer. So I always see the effort that people put in. And sometimes uh-huh. it's not your fault. Sometimes it's just, you know, the the script. You're trying to li- lift it up a little bit to be your A material and the script is D material or, or the opposite. You have a good script and the actors are not following through. So I could see that from a professional level. So I never really said, oh, my goodness, this is a movie I never want to see again. And they're they're all they all have their merits here and there. Some are much better than others. But uh, even you mentioned uh, Trenchcoat, which is a, a very odd film. It's an interesting film. It was Disney's attempt at like an Alfred Hitchcock mystery kind of thing. And it, it's, it's actually a good movie and it's got some great actors, but it's just kind of gone it's gotten lost in the dustbin of Disney history that people just don't know. Or Condor Man is another one that I love. And most people, you say Condor Man, they have no idea what you're talking about. But that was Disney's attempt at like a, a James Bond Superman crossover. It was a really weird superhero movie. So those are movies that watching them, I appreciate what they were trying to do. But I can see why audiences didn't pick up on it at the time. Gotcha. So I'm wondering, too, um, you talked about re- watching all these different films films and shorts in, in terms of the theme parks how did that factor into the equation did you visit um all the different destinations how how did extinct or attractions that are no longer in the mix play into um how you developed some of the lists well I, i'm fortunate that i've been able i've been going to disney world since the early 70s so i i do have memories of that and some of the rides you say are extinct and how it's evolved and how it's changed so that's sort of my home area is the resort Walt disney world resort but i've been to disneyland and california adventure 
and I've been to Paris to the other one, but the I have not I've yet to go to Tokyo or Hong Kong or Shanghai. So for some of those, and I felt it was important to make sure that they were represented, that it wasn't just all sure. about the. I, I'm assuming that 90% of the people who read this book will be they'll buy it in the U.S. and Canada, and they'll read it in the U.S. and Canada. But uh, I I didn't want it to be exclusively about this country because Disney's everywhere. So for those, I had to rely on the consensus of experts of people who have visited every park and, uh, and people who have seen all these different things and what they think. And so I was able to include some of the, the more interesting rides. Some of them now are coming stateside, like the Tron light cycle run, which was, uh, you know, they right. did that in China and it's gotten rave reviews, but some like mystic manor and other ones uh, Alice's hedge maze, which in Paris, it, it doesn't seem like much. It's just a little, but it's so much fun and you're walking through and it's unique and you say, wow, this is not in any other Disney park. So uh, there are some things that, and restaurants and hotels that I wanted to make sure they were all represented, not just the U S parks. Well, and that makes complete sense because indeed, it, you know, it seems like Tokyo and Shanghai especially are leading the way in developing those, those, total e-ticket experiences that are having an impact on the whole theme park industry. Yeah, that was the one that, I mean, uh, if you talk to anybody who really, really knows Disney and you say, what is the greatest Disney park they've ever built? Tokyo Disney Sea wins hands down mm-hmm. every time. I've yet to go there and that's my next, like it's on my bucket list. It's next, not even Tokyo Disneyland because that's sort of a carbon copy of the Anaheim one, but Tokyo Disney Sea is, they say, the architecture is amazing, beautiful, and there's some rides there that have nothing to do with Disney movies or anything, but, uh, the, you know, Voyage of Sinbad and all these other things that are just the Imagineers went crazy. And they say, we're going to make something that the U.S. audiences might not like, but international audiences are going to love. So uh, that was important to make sure those were included. Gotcha. A few other questions about some of your lists, Chris. One of them that I really liked was the idea of underrated Disney characters. So how did how did that one come about? Because indeed, Disney has a nearly century legacy now of, yeah. of creating characters, not only in the films, but shorts, television, all these different mediums. How, how did you determine what would be a good fit for that really niche list? Well, some of that was personal. Some of that were characters I wish got more attention. Uh, like Alan A. Dale, because of Robin Hood, I had to make sure I get some Robin Hood in there. And he's a character when the people <laughs> talk about Robin Hood, they're talking about Robin and Mary and little John and all that. But hardly anyone talks about Alan A. Dale, who's the narrator. And he really, you know, he's the, all the songs, you know, were written by Roger Miller, who is the guy who plays Alan A. So it's a character that you don't hear much about. So the way that list I tried to do it was what popular characters and the most popular and who are their polar opposites? For instance, the fairy godmother from Cinderella is all over Disney World, Disneyland. You go into the Bibbidi Bobbidi Boutique, the, everything about, you hardly hear anything about the blue fairy from Pinocchio, oh, who yeah. performs essentially the same service. She comes in and grants a wish, and she's there, and she's magical, and she drops it, does the same exact thing, but she's been forgotten. She's overlooked. So uh, it's stuff like that. And Disney villains, you know, there are a lot of them that are great villains, but the one that I. I, I don't know why I kind of took a liking to and he's sympathetic is the bowler hat guy from meet the Robinsons, which is an <laughs> underrated movie. And so I put him in there because you hardly ever hear about him. I think I've seen him once in a Disney park, but he's a unique quirky villain that just because the movie didn't do as well as expected has kind of been forgotten. So. Gotcha. Well, you know what, based on Disney's trends of going back into their archives for creating new, 
new content. You know, they did Maleficent, so why not Blue Fairy? That could sure. be an origin film. I so. hope so. And, and also from that list grew another one, which is I wasn't planning on this list, but forgotten characters, characters that were if you look back at Disney in the 30s and 40s, some of their merchandise were all these like Tubby the Elephant and, and Elm, uh, all these different characters that you, you say, wow, those were really popping. They sold, you know, everything, the tortoise and the hare and Clara Cluck. And they were huge characters that everybody knew. But now hardly anyone knows them. You don't you don't see them anywhere. They're really not represented. So uh, Disney is so big a company now that they can even forget about some characters that were their bread and butter for a long time. Sure, sure. And and you also what and you, you really put this eloquently at the beginning of our recording was the idea that you really wanted to highlight the people that have been core to the company. And one of your lists focused on individuals who are overdue for recognition as Disney legends. And one of the names you include on the list um, is Ron Miller, um, who, um, as you mentioned, as many of us know, um, passed away recently. Um, he was Walt Disney's son-in-law, and he was also, most importantly, running the company for a several-year period. I, I was, as I was reading this, I was thinking back. I had put out a series of tweets earlier this year about people, ironically enough, um, without having seen this list, people who, who I think should be Disney legends, and Ron Miller was one I had put on my list. But you, you, you mentioned in your book that he had declined some offers in the past of, of being recognized. And that was something that I, I was having a conversation again with Dave Smith about this. And I mentioned that with one of my, one of my lists was Disney legends. And I wanted to double check and make sure, you know, I looked at the list, but I said, just to be sure, I want to make sure. And I went down the names and I said, well, here are the other people. And as soon as I said, Ron Miller, he said, oh, I so agree with you because he worked under Ron Miller, but he said, Ron will never do it. And I said, what do you mean? And he sort of, he hesitated a bit, and he told me that it, it's been offered. It was offered to Ron Miller and to Ron's wife Diane Disney Miller, and they both declined because they felt that the company and Walt were two different things, and that they'd really, even though Ron Miller did amazing things, and they sort of, right. they're very humble. They were very humble people. Both of them have passed away, so they started the Disney Family Museum in San Francisco, far away from Burbank, far away from people say, why is it in San Francisco? Well, they lived out there. They had a winery out there. So they started it there to really tell the story of Walt separate, even though it's intertwined with, but about the man and about the family and all that. So they didn't want to, from what I understand, they didn't really want to be named as legends just because they were so humble and they didn't want to confuse the two and feel like they were trying to the museum was profiting off of something with the company. So they, they respected Bob Iger and they respected, you know, all the different people that were running the company and they wanted to maintain that distance. So now what I've understood from Disney insiders is that the family has been offered by Disney anytime they want, that they will be happy to name uh, Ron Miller and Diane Disney. It doesn't mean they'll accept The, the children might, still honor their parents wishes and say no but it's a possibility an outside chance that this might be the year that they're named legends and sadly it'll be posthumously but at least more of the public will know about it i, I was grateful that uh, when ron miller passed away he's another one that i reached out to and had conversations with and everyone i had with him he was a, a gentleman a wonderful guy but it was like pulling teeth because he never wanted to take credit for anything and everything i said look you did this he said well these people did it and other people like you were the ceo you were the president you were the reason but he just he was so humble he never thought that he had a big impact on disney and for someone like me who grew up in the 70s 
I said, right. you're the reason I'm a Disney fan. All the movies I love, Robin Hood, all the Kurt Russell, Dexter, Riley movies, all that stuff, all the TV shows, it's you. You were the guy in charge of all that. And so I'm hoping that it gets rectified. But again, it's up to the family. So that it wasn't like Disney was ignoring him. They tried, but he, they kept turning it down. Great. Well, thank you for offering some context on that. No, That's very no helpful. Problem. And, you know, it, I think many of us who are um, consumers of Disney and, and know our Disney history recognize that it's that period under Ron Miller's um, stewardship that really hasn't been examined in a ton of depth in terms of like scholarship, um, research scholarship, that period of, you know, the late 70s and early 80s, the advent of Disney Channel and Touchstone. And it'd yeah. be great to see more material on that particular period um, under his, you know, under his command and, and wonderful um, lasting impact. And, and the funny thing is one of the first corrections Dave Smith made when I sent him my original manuscript and my ideas, I wrote something to the effect of, you know, the seventies were a fallow period for Disney and they didn't have many hits and all. And he immediately shot back with, what are you talking about? I said, well, you know, everybody knows the seventies that Disney was falling behind when other studios were making star Wars and jaws and all these other things. And then people thought Disney was kind of uncool. And then he showed me the box office numbers for their movies, like the Kurt Russell movies and, uh, and and the Fox and the Hound and Pete's Dragon. And he said, you know, these were all hits and people forget that. They think the 70s were big. Time. But he said Ron Miller had hit after hit after hit after hit. But he's forgotten because they, they kind of were lost in the glow of all these other new age Hollywood movies and studios were kind of falling out of favor. So the poor guy got thrown under the bus and was pushed out. But if he had stayed on longer, I think he would have been the one that people say, Thank you for the Disney Channel and thank you for Touchstone and thank you for computer animation and all these things that he put into motion that paid off later. Um, you know, it's kind of like in politics. If, if someone starts a program and then they're out of office and the next guy comes in and the program continues, it's usually the next one that gets credit and people forget it started. And that's what happened with Ron Miller. He was the CEO that put all this stuff in motion, but it was the next guys that got all the credit. And they did a lot of great things, too. But it was some of it was because of what had happened before they got there. I couldn't agree more that you put that very aptly, and it's it's true. Um, from whether it be Tron or Disney Channel or all those um, different entities and and products that came out of that company during that fruitful period, um, it's you know, we, we we see certain things revisited many years later. Like we got a sequel to Tron uh, nearly thirty years yeah. later, and you know that's kind of a testament to the impact of that film. So, Chris, I want to conclude um, the podcast or this episode by kind of finding out more about um, certain things within the Disney world that have been impactful in your life. And certainly the the book is a, a wonderful encapsulation of that and, and also representing Disney more generally. But um, at the end of every episode, um, I ask my guests some Disney-related questions. Uh, I try to get some answers. Um, so that's the aerial reference, of course. Um, <laughs> you know what? I have, I, I've said it now multiple times on the podcast, and I, I chuckle to myself every time because it's true. Like the notion of interviewing, we're asking questions. We hope to get some answers. Sure. So, um, so given that this is a music and book podcast um, and writing in general, uh, I'll be asking you some three standard music-related questions to standard book-related questions, and then a random Disney question that is um, totally unique with uh, every guest. So I'm wondering if you're ready. Okay, I'm ready. All righty. Well, first, 
music related question is what and I might have a suspicion as to what it is, but I'm not mm-hmm. going to guess. But what Disney soundtrack did you listen to most while growing up? <laughs> you, you probably already do know the answer. That's yeah, Robin Hood. It was, <laughs> it was a, the, my grandmother, the movie came out in November. My birthday was December. So she bought me the game, the soundtrack, the storybook, everything. And I still have all of them. And I don't have a vinyl record player anymore. But I think I pretty much wore that thing out. It's, it's all run through now. But... Yeah, the Robin Hood soundtrack was the one that that was over and over again. Nice, nice. Next question is, what Disney song most recently got stuck in your head? Oh, the one that because I'm I'm in New York City quite often is from Enchanted. That's how you know, you know, that's how she knows that. Too. I mean, every time I'm in Central Park or even in Times Square, that's I see. You know, Giselle in my head singing with all the New Yorkers. And I'm hoping people will break into it. never happens. I, you know, people are just surly and going about their business. But uh, that, that song is always in my head when I'm walking through New York City. Oh, I absolutely love the notion of that. Yeah, it has, and it has such a catchy rhythm to it. Bum, 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 it does, bum, yeah. Bum. Great songwriters behind it. I, I tell you, that should have won the Oscar in for uh, the 2008 Oscars. It's such a disappointment it didn't, but <laughs> oh well. Um, what Disney, so third music question is, what Disney film do you feel has the most underrated music? This one, I, I'm, and I'm going to throw it at you and you're going to say, really, Disney is a, oh brother, where art thou? Which is people don't think of. that's Touch, another one that's touchstone, they, right? Yeah, touchstone. Yeah, and it was George Clooney and and the Soggy Bottom Boys, and it's kind of like bluegrass. And I'm not even a big fan of that style of music, but it actually won the Grammy Award, and it's it's you know it's a, and that music it gets when I hear that music, it's kind of I'll sing along or I'll, you know those tunes I know, and I think some of those songs went to number one on the charts or something like that. So it, it's underrated. Not as many people know, but that's that's kind of. People don't think of it as a Disney movie, but that's the one that if I if you said to me, pick a soundtrack, I would listen to that one. Awesome. And I love that how that harkens back to the notion of the book, too, where it's like people might be reading and thinking, wow, that's Disney. Um, a lot of surprising things, right? Yeah. Uh, so two book related questions. The first one is other than your own book. Uh, what is the <laughs> most recent Disney book you have read amongst your collection of hundreds? <laughs> Uh, no, no, the the most recent one I read was a book called uh, "Eat Like Walt" by Marcy Carricker Smothers, who is it's it's one of the most fascinating books. It's it's sounds like a cookbook, but it's kind of Walt's life through food. It's almost what I did with my book, you know, Walt's life through all the different things. But this is she found all Walt's favorite recipes, and um, she she found the the foods at Disneyland, and kind of the you put that in there, and she's got all these great photos that the family gave her, and. It's it's how Walt ate and what kind of a person he was and how that affected all the food in the theme parks and everywhere else. But it's it's a phenomenal. And then there was another smaller one. It was a Disney word search book, which is you say, well, it's just searching for words. But the guy that wrote it, Bob Stengwell, he uh, he very clever. It was all about the different movies and he has trivia in there and each of the puzzles forms an answer to a trivia question. So those are the two most recent ones. Um, and don't you just love a book that's not only fun, but you're learning something new, too? Like, that's always the best combination. Yeah. And I love books that take me by surprise. And those two did, definitely. And final book-related question is, if you could write another Disney book on any topic, 
So not necessarily a second edition to this one, but mm-hmm. uh, an ori- uh, another original book. What would it be focused on? It would be, well, I, I, it's sort of, this is a, a layup question because it's the next book that I will be working on. It's actually um, spending a year at Disney World, like 365 days straight, experiencing everything that's there, every restaurant, every hotel, you know, the horseback riding, the hang gliding, everything they have there, in addition to each ride and kind of chronicling that. So it's going to be the tentative title is My Year of Living Disney. And it's just going to be one of those participation. And the whole idea that Disney's sort of on board with it is to show people that always say, oh, Disney's just for kids. Or why would you go there if you to say, hey, you can spend an entire week there and not even go to the parks and have a million other things to do. So uh, that won't happen for it's going to be a while before we get to that. But that's that's the next book that's on my horizon. Well, I think every Disney fan is going to be ultra jealous of you and will be the first <laughs> to pick up the book. <laughs> that sounds amazing. The The final question for you, Chris, is a random question. So kind of on the on the page of Disney theme parks, what and I know you had a, a list on here about um, some attractions in yesteryear. But do you have a favorite extinct Disney theme park attraction? And if so, why? Oh, that's the easiest one to answer. The great movie ride. Because when oh, people would yeah. ask me, they, they would say, what are your top three Disney rides? And Haunted Mansion will always have number one. There's nothing that's going to supplant that. It was the first ride I ever went on. So sentimental for that. But great movie ride because I'm an actor and because I love movies. I mean, that that ride, the minute I wrote it, it was like, wow, I fell in love. And I, I'm sorry to see it go. I understand why it had to go. And I'm looking forward to the new ride. But if they could bring one back, that's the one I'd love to. Because it's just, you know, you're, it, it really got away from disney it was just taking a ride through movies that walt loved and brought you into you know what hollywood was all about so that's yeah that's my sentimental favorite of all time oh and you know it's it's so sad because i I recognize that closed i think it was like august 2017 so that must have been kind of toward the end of the process of curating information for um for the book it was and i think one of the missteps that disney made was they literally announced the closing and then it was closed less than a month later. So they didn't give right. people like me who were fans a chance to, you know, I'm not that far away. I could have arranged a trip, but not within a month. So I, I never got a chance to say goodbye to the ride. And then I read the other day that they're tearing up all the handprints in front of it. They're redoing. Oh. I suspect eventually they're going to get rid of the Chinese theater front and create something else because they have to pay money to Grauman's to keep licensing that. So I think once the new ride opens, we'll just redo that whole area but yeah they're they're kind of removing what made the great movie right and again i understand i'm not complaining because disney has to move forward and the new ride should be spectacular but it's just uh you know i wish i could travel back to casablanca and alien and wizard of oz and all those other great films again yeah that no that was one of my favorites too and i think it was the same time that they announced the closing of ellen's energy adventure at epcot um yeah. kind of similar circumstances i think they they wanted to avoid the, the notion of a whole movement starting to save the ride. So it's like, okay, quick turnaround. We'll just give folks a few weeks notice. I, I think that's exactly it because they saw the protest from Mr. Toad and 20,000 right. leagues. So yeah, the quicker they do it, the better. Well, yeah, sad, sadly, yeah, I would I would say Great Movie Ride is one of my favorite extinct ones too. Um, well, this has been a, a wonderful experience chatting with you. And I want to make sure folks know how to get a copy of your book. We're recording um, just shortly before um, its official debut, but um, this episode will be released once it is out. So can you share with folks not only how they can purchase a copy of the book, but also um, how they can 
um, check you out on social media and the website as well? Sure. Well, the, uh, the easiest way to go to topdisneybook.com. And it's, there's a blog. It's called Top Disney Blog. And we update with new top 10 lists and they're related to things that are happening. And on there, there's a page, which is topdisneybook.com. It'll take you right to that, where it lists all the places you can buy the book online, all the online stores. And you know, if you want to get it from your local store, but there's information there where you can get it from all the big ones, Amazon, Barnes & Noble. And then if you wanted to get in touch with me personally, my email is mousetop10 at gmail.com. Uh, and on social media, if you go to the website, topdisneyblog.com, uh, there's links to all the different, you know, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all the different pages we're on. So, But to order the book, the easiest thing is topdisneybook.com, and that will also take you to the blog. Wonderful, wonderful. So many outlets to check out new content, content I should say, get in touch, and uh, and most importantly, get a copy of the book. Um, as I said, um, I had a, a blast reading through it and kind of seeing where I totally agreed, where I maybe had my own two cents as far as what should have been on the list. And I think that's the whole part of the the, the book from reading it. It's a participatory process of sorts. And that's what I'd like. I, the, my email address is in the book, too. And I ask people, I specifically want people to email me and say, hey, you forgot this. Or I'd like to say, because then when I write the next version, I'll be able to include some of those and it'll, it'll help me fix some of those things. Fantastic. Well, we, I, I know I'm looking forward to the next edition whenever that may arrive, but I will definitely get excited about your year spent in uh, Disney World and, and that product uh, <laughs> in the meantime. Well, thank you. I appreciate your enthusiasm for the book. Thanks so much, Chris. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. And thanks again to Chris for joining me on the show. It was really a pleasure to have him on and learn more of the behind-the-scenes developmental elements of creating such a fun book. So you can check it out online in bookstores, and you can visit his website for even more fun goodies and lists. Thanks again for joining me on another episode of Notably Disney. I invite you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. Follow me on Twitter at bnachmanreports, that's B-N-A-C-H-M-A-N reports, and be among the first to find out about the release of new episodes. I also encourage you to send me an email to notablydisney at gmail.com regarding your thoughts of the show, as well as suggestions for content. So until we turn the page on another chapter, I'm Brett, and thanks for listening to Notably Disney. Notably, Disney is not affiliated with the Walt Disney Company or any of its subsidiaries. Consequently, the perspectives and opinions expressed by the host and guests are strictly theirs and do not represent the views of the Walt Disney Company and its employees. The main purpose of the Notably Disney podcast is to offer information and critiques about the Walt Disney Company.